Thanks, Nicole, and thank you, Vinay. We continue our series on the Pentateuch and the book of Exodus. Uh, last, uh, last week, a week and a half or so ago, Alicia was uh, my daughter, Alicia, freshman at Iowa State. She was home, and the last couple of days, she started to see a few friends that she hadn't seen the whole break. And she came home after one of those meetings, and she was just talking about her time. And her friend that she met up with, he, he wasn't doing well. This first semester hadn't gone well for him, and, and the biggest complaint that he had was that he, he needed a community of people. He needed, he needed people that he could identify with, people that he felt like would care for him and he could be a part of. He sensed this need to belong. This didn't used to be the challenge that it is in our time. We're in an age of what some philosophers call expressive individualism. And so we are in this increasing conflict to, to be ourselves, uh, to, you know, you do you, to, to really find out who we are and to be authentic individuals without the people or society pressing in on us and telling us who we should be or, or what we should do. But this is a problem because this, this pressure that we get to, to be ourselves and to be authentic and to, to find out who we are um, is, is kind of in conflict and tension with this need that we just naturally have to belong. And one of the challenges that we, we face in this time is that um, we're no longer operating by a, a set of, of, of agreed-upon standards for what life should be like, on what human beings are, about how we are to live in this world. Um, and so what's, what's happened is that since there's no longer any agreed-upon standards or any sort of foundation, uh, and there's this emphasis on, on the individual, what, what's happened is that our, our, our own feelings become the foundation, our own feelings become what is, what is true. And so when we have our feelings and our, and our thoughts telling us who we should be and what we should be, uh, at times they are at tension with what the community or communities around us are telling us to be. And we have reactions to group putting their values and their truths upon us. And so we're trying to be ourselves, but we have people that are still pressuring us to be like them. Um, and, and the real problem is, is that we as individuals can't come to know who we are outside of being in communities of people. The communities that we are a part of are identity-forming communities. And if you just want to take one aspect of it, um, when we are born and we grow up and we come into this world, um, we don't create our own language. And we, we, we receive a language. And language then becomes how we think. It becomes how we speak. It becomes how we process things. And all this is given to us. Individuals don't come up with their own way of thinking and speaking. It's a part of a community process. What's happening is that with our culture increasingly telling us that we have to come up with our own identities. We, what we essentially have are communities of people telling us to come up with our own identities because our culture is increasingly lacking in identity-forming resources. Again, we have 
we, we, tell each, we tell ourselves to just, you be you. But we don't know how to answer the question, who am I? What does it mean to be true to my authentic self? And if, and if community is a part of the identity forming, identity forming process in me, how can I be a part of a community that doesn't ultimately oppress me? Because that's really the shift that's been taking place really over hundreds of years. We, we, we have come to a point where we see that foundations or uh, set truths or large narratives about what the world is about and about whether it's God or religion or politics or science, these become oppressive truths that restrict us as individuals in becoming who we are. And so that's a challenge. How do we become who we are without communities oppressing us? And how do we become who we are without really wanting the world to conform to us? I don't, I don't think we really want to become the center of the universe, but that's what our, our feelings are oftentimes telling us. It's a very selfish place to be. So how do, we, how do we become our true selves and yet belong to a community that doesn't oppress us and not become selfish narcissists? Obviously, you can see where the challenges are, are at in our culture, in our political dialogue. So the Bible is telling us, you know, we've worked through Genesis, we're now in Exodus, but we see that God is about this work. The Bible is telling us that God is about this work to bring righteousness and justice into the world through his people. Righteousness is this idea that we as individuals can be right in our consciences we can be right in our sense of who we are and our identities, but that, that place of being right is also then something that we experience with, with other people and, according to the Bible, with God. And so to be a righteous person is to exist with a recognition that you are full as an individual and that the community that you are part of, you are right with them as well. There's harmony. There's peace. And so God is at work, the Bible is telling us that God is at work to bring about this state of righteousness in his people, the people that he has created. The work of justice are efforts that we engage in to bring things back to righteousness when they're not. Because all of us would have to recognize that we are not all the time perfectly righteous. We are not all the time uh, in tune with ourselves. We're not all the time in tune with other people. We're not all the time in turn with our consciousness, and we're not all the time right with God. And so when we recognize that, we engage in efforts, efforts with ourselves, efforts with other people to, to bring things to a place of, of righteousness and wholeness. And so really, what, what God is doing is he, is he is working in us and in this world, according to the Bible, um, to bring us to a place where we as individuals really know who we are and experience a sense of fullness in our lives and are a part of communities where we have a strong sense of belonging and they're neither oppressive or loose communities. We are righteous and one and reconciled with them. That is what God is doing. That is what God is doing. And so this, this tension and conflict we feel in our culture 
about being ourselves and yet needing and requiring a sense of belonging, that is the, that is the, the heart need that God is trying to address in his work with people. And the story of Moses takes us deeper into what this means and looks like. And so chapter 2 has three scenes about, their, about, about Moses. It's going to take us, we have a story about his birth, which Nicole read. We have a story of him as a, as a 40-year-old man. And, we have, and when we have a story of him becoming a family man. And we'll see that, that God is going to be at work. Now chapter 1 was about the nation of Egypt enslaved in, excuse me, the nation of Israel enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. And so chapter one introduces us to the nation. Chapter two introduces us to the individual person of Moses. And so let's look at these scenes here real quick. So Moses' birth, we're told that he has Levite parents. So immediately, if we are um, careful readers of the Bible, we know that this, this promised child this promised child that God promised to the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he would, give, he would bring a child through the woman into the world that would destroy death and bring life back to his creation. That's the, that is the promise that the Bible is working out. And we, and we learn in Genesis that this child is going to come from the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob has 12 children. And of those 12 children, we learn at the end of the book of Genesis that it is from the family of Judah that this promised child will come. So we know that, that, this, that this, the birth of this person, Moses, is not the promised one. He's a Levite. Now, all we know about the Levites so far is that Levi was one of the two brothers, along with, along with Simeon, who took out revenge against the people of Shechem, for the king of Shechem's son raping their sister Dinah. So they discovered that Dinah was raped, and, and the son's name is Shechem. And so they, they tricked the city, and they killed all of the men. That's what Levi and Simeon did. That's all we know of Levi so far. And so here we have a child born to a Levite dad and a Levite mom. And so we should be wondering... Um, what kind of man is this Moses going to be? Is he going to be somebody that is um, that has some righteous indignation for injustices and does something about it? Well, he's born, and three months later, the mom hides him, puts him in a basket, puts him in the river, has his sister look after him to see what will become because at this time Moses has instructed all of the nation of Egypt to kill anyone, any male born to Hebrews. And so they're, they're, they're saving their son by putting him in, in this basket. Pharaoh's daughter happens to see the basket and draws Moses out of the water. So Pharaoh instructed all of the nation of Egypt to throw the boys into the Nile to kill them. And here you have Pharaoh's daughter defying the edict of her father in drawing him out of the Nile. So Pharaoh's daughter saves Moses' life and she names him Moses. And we'll get into the details, but it's a combination of, a, of an Egyptian and Hebrew identity, the name. He's only three months, he's, he's excuse me, <laughs> He's only three years with his initial family because Pharaoh's daughter hires Moses' mother 
to nurse him and to wean him. So Moses at three years old comes in to live with Pharaoh's family. The next scene is Moses as a grown man. He's 40 years old. And the story tells us that he goes out to his people. Now the text isn't super clear, but it seems to indicate that Moses knew that he was an Israelite. His mother probably explained the meaning of his name and the story behind it. So he goes out to, the, to, his, to his people and he sees an Egyptian abusing an Israelite. Moses looks both ways, stops the fight, stops the abuse by killing the Egyptian. So the next day he goes out and he buries the Egyptian in the sand to cover what he's done. The next day he goes out, and he sees two Israelites, two of his people, fighting. And he does, and there's clearly in Moses' eyes, there's one in the right and there's one in the wrong. But he doesn't kill the Israelite that's in the wrong. He corrects them with his speech. They turn around and say, who are you to, to judge us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And so he finds out that it's known that he murdered the Egyptian. So he's afraid. He learns that, Moses, that, that Pharaoh is wanting to take his life. And so he runs away to Midian. So we have Moses at 40 years old. He has no family. He has no people. And he's alone in a nation that's not his. He has no nation. And the last scene is Moses as a family man. So he runs to Midian and he's sitting at a well. And by now we should know, okay, things happen at wells. And it's likely that he's probably going to get a wife because that's what seems to happen at wells. And so he's sitting at the well and he sees Raul's, Raul as the, the prince, excuse me, the priest of God in Midian. Raul's daughters come and they draw water for their livestock. And what seems to be a daily occurrence, there are these shepherds, men, that wait for the daughters to come out. They wait for the daughters to draw enough water to feed their livestock. And then they bully the daughters with the full well. They bully the daughters to get away. And they let their livestock drink all the water. And so the daughters have to come back and draw all the water again. So this takes a lot of time. Well, Moses sees what's happening and he stops the shepherds from bullying the daughters so that they can feed their livestock with the water that they drew from the well. And so the, the daughters, they return home earlier than usual and the father says, why did, you know, you've returned so quickly? Well, we had a man help us out, an Egyptian man. And so the dad meets him Moses likes the family, Moses likes Midian, and uh, Reuel gives Zipporah, his daughter, to marry Moses, so they marry, and they have a son, and they name him Gershom, which means sojourner. And then Moses said, I am a stranger in a strange land, and that's what his son's name means. And so these are the three scenes. So again, an entire chapter on the nation, now an entire chapter on the man, Moses, and so if we just look at the, the qualities that Moses has or seems to have to this point, 
there's a few things to point out. First of all, he's raised as the son of a king. All right, so there was nothing that he needed. He grew up with the best education. He grew up with the best training. He had every opportunity available to him. He possesses an internal indignation at injustice. He broke up the fight and killed the Egyptian. He broke up the argument between the Israelites and he rescued Raul's daughters from the, the bullying shepherds. He sees something wrong and he does something about it. Unlike, I don't know if you read the story, it was late last year, there were, and I may have mentioned this in a sermon before, I don't think so, but there was a story about a woman on a subway in New York City and she was being sexually assaulted and there were 10 people on the train watching it and they did nothing that's not Moses that's not Moses Moses sees injustice and he does something about it even against groups he's not afraid to get into a little scuffle he seems to be a capable fighter I'm sure he was trained I mean Egypt had um, the best military they had the best weapons he was trained in hand-to-hand combat and use of these weapons so he's a capable fighter he cares for women He works as a shepherd, and so he has a lot of leadership qualities. He's got confidence, he's a protector, he's a risk taker, he's an overcomer, he takes responsibility. So these are his qualities. He seems like a great man, 40-year-old guy at this point. But if we look at his emotional life, he's not a man at peace. And it doesn't tell us a lot. You know, the, the, the Old Testament in particular is very economical in its, in its use of detail. So in the little bit it, that it does have, we are to draw a lot from. On the outside, we would look at him and we would say, who wouldn't want to be like him? He's got a wife, he's got children, he's, a, he's an upstanding man, he probably doesn't have a lot that he feels guilty about. He's got a family. But even though he has so many qualities, and even though he's married, and even though he has children, he feels alone, and he feels disconnected, and it seems like he always has. You know, when he says, you know, he he names his child Sojourner, and then he says, I am a stranger in a strange land. And I don't think he can just be, it it doesn't seem like he's just referring to his new home in Midian, with his new family. Because when he was in Egypt, he was a stranger in a strange land. In Egypt, he was an Egyptian, but he was also a Hebrew. But the Egyptians were trying to kill him now, and he never, you know, he really wasn't, a, he never considered them his people. And, even, and, and, the, and the Israelites shunned him. We don't want you. So he runs away, and now he's in, so is he an Egyptian, is he a Hebrew, is, or is he a Midianite? And he names his son as a perpetual reminder that I don't have a home, I don't have a people, I don't have a nation. So when we start thinking about us, ourselves, you know, we feel this burden to be expressive individuals. We feel the burden to to identify who we are and how we contribute and what makes us great. And we want to post these things on social media. We want to express who we are. But we can't break free from the need to belong and to be affirmed. You know, even, even when we think about, um, you know, 
you know, the, the, uh, the rebellious and independent teenage daughter, for example, who colors her hair and listens to music that's strange to her family, and you know, she's not getting along with her parents or her siblings, and so she seems like she, you know, she's just being this expressive individual. But you know, if you went and observed her at school, she's hanging out with a group of young women that are just like her. So she's an expressive individual to one group, but into another group, she fits right in and has an identity and a sense of belonging there. We are never just individuals. We are shaped by groups, and groups give us a sense of identity. We long for the acknowledgement and affirmation that people gives us, and that helps us understand who we are. And so Moses never had a consistent group that lasted. And I think it's, it's similar to the struggle that people that are adopted have. Uh, my family adopted a 12-year-old girl from, from India uh, two weeks after Anna and I were married. So I didn't get to know, I don't know her really well. But I know that her struggle to feel like she was a part of the family was difficult. And also to feel like she was an American. That was a very difficult thing for her. And so I think that this is something that, that is not unusual for people that are adopted, but I think if we actually were honest with ourselves, I think it's probably the case for all of us in some way. Who are we? Where do we belong? What is our meaning? What is our purpose? What community of people do I belong to or should I belong to? We have lots of groups that we are parts of. We have families, we have workplaces, we have schools, we have our culture, we have all the media that we absorb, and each of them is telling us something a little bit different about who we are, about who we should be, about how the world works. What is true of us? And what is true of us as a people? Obviously, we see that increasingly our world is increasingly uh, at war with itself, all the culture wars. Because, again, there's not an agreed-upon set of truths that governs our common human life. Increasingly, the truth that we believe is the truth of our feelings about who we are and about the way things should be. So the if we continue with the text, chapter two ends. You know, the story, of Mo, the, the story of God raising up Moses to be this leader for the nation of Israel goes throughout chapter four. And we're gonna continue to work through this. And the next few sermons are on identity and calling and belonging and who God is in the midst of it. But this chapter ends with three short verses. Pharaoh dies. So it's been like, 80 years, 100 years, where Israel as a nation has been under this oppression. So Pharaoh dies, but the oppression doesn't end. It continues. And they, so they start crying out and asking for help. Israel needs deliverance. Moses needs deliverance. And so the chapter ends with this statement. It says, God heard the cries for help from Israel. God remembered his promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the oppression that they were under. 
And God knew their suffering. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. And and the text leaves you with this sense that God is going to do something. God is going to do something. He's not going to just let these things sit as they are. Israel needs a leader, and Moses needs a people. And God addresses the needs and desires of the individual Moses and of the community. And that's really the rest of the story of Israel and Moses that takes us through the book of Deuteronomy. It's four entire books. The nation needs a leader. The individual Moses needs a people. And God is going to be at work to bring these things to clarity. And so what we're going to see over the the course of the, the rest of the Pentateuch is that the needs of the individual and the needs of the community are integrated. Are integrated. We won't know who we truly are as individuals until we understand ourselves in light of who God is and what he's doing as with, with his people. And as we see ourselves called to his people, we will, we will sense that we are increasingly becoming who God has made us to be. We started watching The Hobbit over Christmas break. I think, Lawrence, you guys did too as well. And I don't usually like to bring up The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings references because I think they're fairly common. But there was, and I hadn't seen it with the clarity as I did this time through. And so The Hobbit is the story of Bilbo Baggins. He's a hobbit. And I'm sure all of you know the story, but I, I, it's important to bring out some of these specifics. And so there's a, a group of 13 dwarves that, or is it 12 dwarves, and then the total is 14, and I think it involves Gandalf too. So it's, I think it's a dozen dwarves, and they are in need of a burglar. And Gandalf the wizard says, hey, I have a friend Bilbo, he's a hobbit, he would be a perfect burglar. Now Bilbo is an unlikely candidate for a burglar, a thief. He loves the comforts of home. He loves the comforts of food and drink. He loves the predictability and security of routine. He does not want an adventure. He doesn't want anything that breaks up his lifestyle. He's perfectly content and happy without anybody bothering him. And he loves the people of the Shire. But he gets pulled into this adventure. And initially, the struggle is very difficult for him. And the dwarves doubt him from the beginning because they think he's too soft. They know he loves his food. They know he loves his handkerchief. They know that he loves the the doilies that his grandmother made that sit on his furniture. And they give him a hard time because he's whining and complaining about the sleep, about the food, about being outdoors and exposed. And he doubts himself. And and, and throughout early on in the journey, he, he really wants to go home. In fact, he decides to go home. But he changes his mind after a particularly difficult trial. And he commits himself to this adventure. See, these dwarves were kicked out of their home generations earlier. And they have been wandering around Middle Earth for a really long time. And one of the themes about these dwarves is that They don't have a home, 
And they don't really have a people because there, there are groups of dwarves that spread around Middle Earth that have homes and they have some identities to them. This group doesn't. They don't have a land, they don't have a place, they don't have their home. And what Bilbo begins to see is that the things that he loves the very most are the things that they don't have. And he grows in his love and affection for these dwarves. And the thing that gets him to commit to this journey that he knows he might be killed in, the thing that causes him to stick to it is his love for the dwarves and his desire for them to have what he loves. And ultimately, this is, it's really the story of Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't have to learn to love us like Bilbo had to learn to love the dwarves because Bilbo was repulsed by them from the very beginning. See, the, the Bible teaches that Jesus knew us and loved us before the foundations of the world. Before we were even in our mother's womb, God says that he knew us. Jesus created us. He fashioned each of us uniquely as individuals. There's no one like anyone else. So there's a lot of thought and creativity that goes into each and every one of us that, that Jesus does. And he loved us. And he wants us to dwell with him, and he wants us to dwell with each other in his land as a people. But we as people, we lost it. We lost it when we decided that truth is what we think of ourselves and not what God has given to us. And that's the story of the garden that we reviewed in Genesis and a part of the consequences of that is, is that we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten that we are children of God. We have forgotten that, that we are fashioned and created by him. Roger Ayer in his, in his, in his uh, uh, recent writing says, you know, when a, when a people forget God, they for, they'll forget who they are. And the culture is lost. See, we, we long for it. We long for this, this sense that we are special as individuals, that we have a unique calling. All that's true. But, and we've also lost what it means to really be a part of commun a community of people. These things evade us. We long for it. We long for a sense of being special. We long for a sense of belonging, but they constantly evade us. So Christ in his love for us and in him wanting us to have a home and to dwell with each other and to have a family and to exist with us, he gave up his home. He gave up his people. He gave up his security. He gave up his glory. He gave up his beauty. He gave up his very life. Why? It's, it's the same reason that Bilbo Baggins decided to stay on the journey. His love for us was more than his love for what he had. He says, I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to give my life so the people I love can experience what I love so much. And in the end, in his giving up of his life, he secured us as individuals and with an identity founded in God with unique callings and gifts and capacities to serve him, to serve others, and to sense fulfillment. To give us belonging to a family. God has since 
the promise he made to, to Abraham. I will make you a people. I will make you a family. I will make you a nation. And so the people that have been brought in through Jesus Christ are a part of that family. He's given us a sense of meaning and purpose. He's given us clarity on what it is to be right as individuals and to be right with other people. He's given us clarity on what it means to engage in justice. He has forgiven us our injustices. He has forgiven us our unrighteousness. He has given us mercy and he's given us the power to overcome. He's given us the power to experience what it means to be an individual and as a member of a family. And in his giving up of these things for us, he came into a greater joy. He came into a greater family. We are Jesus's inheritance. So that's what Jesus is calling us into. And that's what God is doing in Moses. That's what God is doing in this entire nation. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you for this story. Thank you for the, the beauty in which it shows us what you are doing with millions of people in the nation of Israel and with this one individual in Moses. And God, thank you that even though Moses seems like a, a, a great leader and he's got great capacities, we really see in him a lot of us, a lot of weakness and a need to belong. And so God, our, our prayer is that as we continue to go through the Pentateuch, as we continue to understand your word, God, as we continue to live in this world that is in such desperate need, as people that are in desperate need, we pray, God, that you would increasingly give us an understanding of who you are to us so that we can come to know you more and to fulfill the calling that you have on us as individuals and as a family. In your son's precious name we pray, amen.